0: We're going to hear from God's Word now. So I invite you to grab one of the Bibles on the seat next to you and open that up. Now, we're reading this morning from Romans chapter 6, and Lyndon's going to read that
1: for us. Thanks, Phil. Uh, This is the Word of God. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, though through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this, The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought through death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall not, no longer for your master, but you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Thanks, Lyndon. Uh, I'm going to pray.
0: Uh, we'll have a time for questions at the end as we normally do. Uh, so if you've got questions, you can ask them then. Uh, but let's pray. Now, Father God, we are, we're hot, we're uncomfortable, uh, we'll find it difficult to concentrate, and so Lord, we ask for your strength now, that we might concentrate on your word. Help us see that these words are not only true, but life-changing, and so Lord, we ask that you would change us by them, and we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. I like your Christ... I do not like your Christians. Your, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. These are words spoken by Mahatma Gandhi, and they have a sting to them, don't they? For followers of Jesus, at least. Now, it's, it's kind of worth pointing out, there's a few things that Gandhi's kind of got wrong here. Uh, for starters, I really doubt whether Gandhi actually did like Christ, Because if he did, he would have worshipped him. And when someone who says they like Christ but doesn't worship him, well, there's a good chance that the Christ they like is actually just a Christ that they've invented for themselves, not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, Secondly, Gandhi's words kind of assume that the point of Christianity is that we would all become like Jesus. Uh, But of course, the reason we worship Jesus is because we are so unlike him. But those things aside, there is some sting to Gandhi's words, don't you think? An accusation that we Christians do not live up to expectations. That we should be different. That we should look more like Jesus, but we don't. And of course, Gandhi's not the only person pointing out this... uh, yeah, this inadequacy in Christians. He's not the only one pointing at Christians and saying, you've failed to live up to expectations. And perhaps you've been accused by, you know, that antagonistic coworker, that your non-Christian mates accusing you of behaving so unchristianly. Perhaps you've pointed the finger at yourself. Kind of getting angry at yourself, feeling like you're a failure because you're not living up to your own expectations as a Christian. But this question, this accusation, as we think about it, it raises this question, should we expect it to be different? What should we expect to be As people who through faith have been justified, what should our lives look like now? Should we be able to resist sin? Should we gradually become less and less sinful as time goes on? Should we expect that we can actually attain perfection? Well, these are the questions we're going to be answering from Romans 6 this morning. Uh, where we left off in chapter 5 last week, Paul has been demonstrating how completely and how comprehensively grace that came through Jesus has triumphed over the sin and death that came through Adam. If you remember last week, he was saying sin and death enter the world through Adam, and because we belong to Adam, we die. But just as sin and death came through Adam, grace has come through Jesus. And if we are included in him, well, we too live under the reign of grace, this abounding, overflowing grace. He concluded his argument in verse 20 of chapter 5, if you just flick up in your Bibles. uh, He concluded in verse 20 by saying that where sin is increased grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and it's in response to this statement that we get the question that comes in verse 1 of chapter 6 what shall we say then Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul introduces this as a question. Really, it's an accusation. Uh, This is the kind of thing that Paul's opponents would throw at him to disprove his gospel of grace. They would say, if it's true, as you say, Paul, that as sin increases, well, grace increases even more, well, why shouldn't we just keep sinning so that grace could keep growing? The more we sin, the better God looks, right, Paul? That's what Paul says, they say. And if Paul's gospel promotes sin, well, it can't be from God. It must be a false gospel. That, that's the argument that Paul's opponents level at him. And so that's the question that Paul spends the rest of chapter 6 addressing. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? But before we see Paul's answer, I want us to see how relevant this question is for us. Because I doubt that many of you actually think that you should sin more so that God looks better. That just seems a bit wacky, even if the logic sort of checks out. But what's more common is that we who know the riches of God's grace can fall into the danger of thinking that our sin doesn't really matter. We know God will forgive us. We've been told again and again and again that God is merciful, that he forgives sin. And we know that there is no sin too big for Jesus to forgive. We know that Jesus is ready to welcome us no matter what we've done and because of that we're tempted to think that well sin doesn't really matter I can be a Christian and well if I slip up well Jesus will forgive me and so we just sort of minimize sin we don't really care we don't treat it as serious so the question that we ask is well should we go on sinning because God's grace is enough should we go on sinning because Jesus forgives Well, Paul answers pretty strongly in verse 2. No, he says, no, we shouldn't. Why not, though? Why shouldn't we just keep on sinning? Why shouldn't Paul's opponents keep on sinning so that God's grace might increase? Well, Paul's answer, it's kind of surprising. Uh, He says, you're forgetting that you died. The reason Christians don't go on sinning is because Christians are those, verse 2, who have died to sin. And Paul explains this dying to sin in verse 3 in terms of baptism. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, you might be reading that and going, oh, no, I, I didn't know that, Paul. Uh, that's all right. Most of us associate baptism with, with new life. Uh, what, we get baptisms, well, either when a baby is born, new life, or when someone, uh, you know, professes faith in Jesus, they're raised to new life. And so for us, the image of baptism is, is new life. But for Paul, baptism is all about death. And that's because baptism is a symbol of us being joined to Jesus. Now, baptism is a sign of us being washed clean of sin. It's also a sign of us receiving the Holy Spirit. But here in Romans 6, the focus that Paul draws attention to is on baptism being a sign of our union with Christ. Just as a woman walking down the aisle and joining hands with a man symbolises marriage, the bride's union to her husband, a Christian being washed is a symbol of their being united with Jesus, of very much the two becoming one. When someone is baptised, they are identifying with Christ, taking hold of Christ, being included in Christ. And when you're in union with Christ, when you're in Christ, what happens to him happens to you. We talked about this already last week. Uh, The the classic illustration for you, though, is of the aeroplane. I didn't come up with this, just so you know, but uh, yesterday Janice and I booked flights uh, down to Newcastle for a trip later this year. And when we step onto that plane, whatever is true of the plane will become true of us. When the plane takes off, we take off. When the plane bounces through turbulence, we will bounce with it. When the plane lands in Newcastle, although we booked with Bonza, so I probably should say if the plane lands in Newcastle, We will too. What happens to the plane happens to us. Now, that's very simple. You get it. When you're in the plane, whatever happens to the plane happens to you. Well, it's the same with Jesus. When you are in Christ, united with Christ, what is true of him is true of you. And what is true of Jesus is that Jesus died. And so when Jesus died, you died too. When Jesus rose again, we rose too, but we'll come to that in a bit. It keeps going. In Ephesians, Paul says that just as Jesus is seated in the heavenly realms, we are too right now, he says. We are with Jesus, even though we're clearly here. Uh, Just as Jesus will reign forever, Those who are in Christ will reign with him too. What happens to Jesus happens to all those who are in Christ, in Jesus. Now, what that means here is that Paul can say that if you've been baptised into Jesus' death, well, you died with him. And we actually see that in the image of of baptism. When we baptise someone, as a person goes under the water... They are dying with Jesus. That's kind of part of the imagery. Next time I'll really hold someone down just so you get the picture that they are dying. They're being buried with Jesus. But of course, there's more to the motion, isn't it? They come back up. They rise again. Baptism is an image of dying and rising again, of being resurrected. Uh, Here's Paul's point though. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptised into his death, if you are in Christ, you died to sin. Now, what does that actually mean? Because that's language that Christians throw around a bit. Oh, we've died to sin. What what does that mean? I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean first, because this is important. Uh, It doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. And I'm assuming you know that. If you've been a Christian for five minutes, you'll know that you still sin. It doesn't mean we'll never sin again. It also doesn't mean you'll never want to sin again. Some Christians will kind of say that when you've died to sin, well, you might still sin, but you'll always have the desire to not sin. It's not true. And we can see that it's not true in this passage, because down in verse 12, Paul has to tell his readers... To stop sinning. He says, do not let sin reign in your bodies. Do not give in to its desires. Now, if they didn't have sinful desires, he wouldn't have had to say that, would he? It's like, dying to sin doesn't mean you won't ever want to sin. You will still sin and you will still even want to sin. Thirdly, dying to sin doesn't mean that we will gradually become less and less sinful over time. The first two points I made, not many Christians really think that, but this third one, it's really common for us to think that the longer we're a Christian, the less sinful we become. Friends, it's not true. And and if you keep believing it is true, you will be haunted by that truth on your deathbed. On Tuesday, we gave thanks to God for the life of our dear brother David. And I I consider myself really privileged to have been able to walk with David in his last days on this earth. It was a tremendous encouragement to me. And, And you learn a lot about someone when you see them dying. You see what they really love. You see who they really are. You see what terrifies them. Friends, I'll tell you what. David Voss was a man who died confident in the hope of the gospel. The day he learned he was dying, I opened the door to his hospital room expecting to see a man wrestling with his mortality. Instead, I opened the door and saw a man on his feet smiling, ready to meet Jesus. Friends, if dying to sin meant ever-increasing sinlessness, David could not have had that kind of confidence. Because as wonderful as David was, he didn't make it to sinlessness. He did not go to the grave thinking that he had become perfect. And friends, that's going to be true of all of us. In our last days on this earth, if it is our expectation that we will have become sinless, we're going to be terrified of death. But friends, we we don't stand before Jesus and say, look how sinless I've become. No. Dying to sin doesn't mean that we won't ever sin again. It doesn't mean that we won't want to sin again. And it doesn't mean that we will gradually get rid of sin. So what does it mean? Friends, the key to understanding what it means to die to sin is to see that we have died to sin in the same way that Jesus did. All through this passage, Paul says that we died with Jesus. Verse 5, we have been united with him in a death like his. Verse 8, we died with Christ. And so for us to understand what it means for us to die to sin, we need to see what it means for Jesus to die to sin. And in verse 10, Paul says that the death Jesus died, he died to sin, Once for all. And that gives us a little clue, doesn't it? In what sense did Jesus die to sin? He died to sin by paying its penalty. He died to sin by suffering the punishment that sin required. So that means when Paul says we died with Jesus, he means that by our union with him, we Pay the penalty for sin. If someone gets sentenced to 10 years in prison, at the moment those 10 years expire, the debt is paid, isn't it? And they can walk out of that prison. They are free. They have paid the price. The punishment is complete. And from that point on, the person no longer has to live under the power of the prison. They're free. They're not a prisoner anymore. They are free.
1: Well, friends, in the same way, if
0: we are united with Jesus in his death, we have paid the penalty for sin. Now, of course, he did it, but we're united with him. So we have done it. Which means we no longer have to live under the consequences of our sin. The debt has been paid. I hope hope you understand that. It's it's kind of complex. But what it means is that dying to sin is not about you overcoming the power of sin. It's not about you growing the strength to resist sin. It's about you being set free from the consequences of sin. And so in answer to Paul's question, uh, why should Christians not go on sinning? Well, Christians don't go on sinning because they know that in Christ... We have died to sin and that the punishment has been paid. It's done. I want, I want to bring this home. I'm kind of hammering this point, but it's an important point. Um, and it's really interesting because conventional wisdom will tell you that the way to keep people in line, the, the way to keep people, I guess, good and obedient is the threat of punishment, right? Right? That is the reason the people driving past here are mostly driving the speed limit, isn't it? It's the the threat of getting a fine that keeps them within the speed limit. It's the threat of jail that keeps most people within the bounds of the law. It's the threat of detention that keeps school kids obeying their teachers. It's the threat of punishment that keeps kids complying with their parents. what would happen if we took away the threat of punishment, do you reckon? What happens if the Queensland police came out and said, oh, we're going to stop fining people for traffic infringements. We're just going to show grace. What do you think would happen? Our suspicion is probably true that it would be chaos on the roads, right? People would do whatever they wanted. Conventional wisdom tells you that we need the threat of punishment to keep people in line. And so what we've done is we've taken that idea and we've applied it to the gospel. And so what we've done is said that, well, we Christians, we need the law to constrain us, to control us, to limit sin. But friends, do you see what Paul says in this passage? How is it that the gospel motivates right living? What is, what is it that the gospel uses? Is it, is it the threat of punishment? No, no, it's, it's not the threat of punishment. It's the exact opposite that, of that. It's the assurance that the punishment has been paid. Paul says to you, go out and live a good life, not because if you don't, bad things are going to happen, but because the bad thing has already happened to you. You've already died. You're free. That takes some adjustment in our brains, doesn't it? The the motivation for us living a good and godly life, the motivation for us putting away sin, is that the punishment has been served. We've died to sin. We don't strive to live good lives for fear of what God might do if we don't. We strive to live good lives with the assurance of what God has already done. Friends, the punishment is paid. You don't need to live in fear of death. We have died to the consequences of sin. Which means that now, now we get to live a new life. Just as we have been united with Jesus in his death, we also have been united with Jesus in his resurrection. Now, you've probably never thought about this. I hadn't. Uh, There's a big difference between being resuscitated and being resurrected. When someone is resuscitated, they, they continue to live the same life that they lived previously, right? They might have you know, been unconscious for a bit, their heart might have even stopped beating. But when they're resuscitated, when someone does the thing, they live the same life. They, They wake up the same person and they will die again at some point. Jesus didn't do that, did he? He wasn't resuscitated. Jesus was dead. He wasn't sleeping, he wasn't unconscious. he was stone, cold, dead. And that's important, because it means that when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he was a new man. He lived a new life. The people who knew him previously, they didn't recognize him at first. He was a new man. Of course, there was some continuity. But there was a newness. He rose to new life, never to die again. Well, friends, if we have been raised with Christ, the same is true of us. When you became a Christian, you you weren't just kind of resuscitated, given a little boost. No, you died and you started again. You are living the life of a new person. It's a new life. The old you is dead. The old you died with Jesus. The new you, the new you is a new creation, a new person, a new life. And so now we can live that new life differently. And this is where Paul draws it all together in verse 11. How do we live this new life? Uh, Reading from verse 10, he says, the death Jesus died He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And friends, the way for us to live a new life, a life that is for God, is for us to count ourselves in the way that God counts us. Do you see the language there? It's, of, it's, it's self-perception. How do you think about yourselves? Paul's saying, count yourselves. Think of yourself in this way, dead to sin, but alive to God. And so the, the key is that we actually realise, think and ponder and see that we are new people. That we have died to sin, and that we have been raised again. So now think of yourself in that way. Uh, to illustrate it, uh, I had a relative who, at one time, was, was very wealthy, and then through a series of bad investments, that they lost everything, uh, and they became relatively poor. They were still eating, but you know relatively, to what they were, very poor. Uh, when that first happened, it took some adjustment for them because they had been so used to living their whole life as a wealthy person. They had been wealthy for so long that when they became poor, that they didn't know how to live as a poor person and it took some adjusting. They, they kept living as if they had money. Friends, the reverse would also be true, wouldn't it? I don't know someone who this has happened to, but I'm sure it's true. If a very poor person inherits a large fortune, they will find it difficult to consider themselves rich. As someone used to being poor, it will take them some time to adjust and to actually see themselves as what they are. Friends, it, it, that's that's our situation. We have died to sin. We have begun a new life. That is reality, because it happened to Jesus. God counts you as righteous. When God looks at you, He says, "Right with me, perfect." But how do we view ourselves? Well, most often we still view ourselves down here, don't we? We think of ourselves not as what we are, but as what we were. Friends, count yourself as God sees you. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we're naive. That, that doesn't mean that we don't recognize that, well, we actually do still sin. But we are motivated by the fact that we are no longer under sin's power. We no longer face sin's consequence. John Stott summarizes this well, and I'm going to finish with this. Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, yes, I suppose she could. It is not impossible. But let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring, the symbol of her new life of union with her husband, and she will want to live accordingly. Well, in the same way, can born again Christians live as though they were still in their sin? Well, yes, I suppose they could. At least for a while. It's not impossible. But let them remember who they are. Let them recall their baptism, the symbol of their new life of union with Christ. And they will want to live accordingly. Friends, to answer our question from the beginning, what what should we expect of our new life as justified sinners? I feel like we, we shouldn't be too optimistic or pessimistic. So often we're so pessimistic to think that we can't possibly overcome sin and so we don't even try. Equally, there's the danger of thinking that we have already attained perfection and so we don't even notice when we haven't. Friends, objectively, we are living a new life. We have the ability to resist sin we have the motivation to strive will we still sin of course we will but we get to push on knowing that we have a new identity and so we strive to live it out accordingly let me pray and then we'll have time for questions our lord god we praise you that we could be in union with Jesus, that we could be counted in him, so that what is true of him could also be true of us. We thank you that just as Jesus died to sin, overcoming its consequence by paying its penalty, we can say that in him we have died too. And we thank you that just as Jesus rose again to new life, a new life with a new direction, living for you, a new life without end, we thank you that we can live this new life too. Lord, we pray that the riches of your grace would motivate us to live our new lives for you. Help us see what we are, so that we may live accordingly. Lord, keep us from despair when we fail. Keep us from thinking that we can defeat sin in this life. Help us to be realistic, but help us to see that we do have a new life, that we can live with a new direction that we do not need to fear the consequence of sin anymore and that that would drive us to live for you.
1: and Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.